0: Amen. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. Um, I I don't know if you ever found it, but uh, I've found it over and over again studying the Word of God. You look in a passage of Scripture, it doesn't look like there's much there, but the more you look in it, the more you contemplate it, uh, the more you uh, meditate again upon that passage of Scripture, the more that comes uh, to you, the glory that happened to again in there. And it's just the same with the passage that we're going to look at this afternoon. I hope it'll be a great blessing to you. You know that's one of the things I love about expository preaching is you keep going and you keep going and you have to read these passages of Scripture and really study them, uh, but you see the significance of who our God again happens to be, and in this passage we realize that there's some Greeks that come to Jesus and they want this audience with uh, Jesus, and that because, that causes Jesus to reflect that he's going to give himself as that perfect offering, not just for the Jews, but for all mankind. You know, and uh, he offers up a prayer that happened to begin beginning of uh, he- heaven. And he doesn't say again, deliver me from this hour, but for this hour I have come. And he wants the Father to be glorified. And here's the amazing thing. This voice for the third time comes from heaven, that uh, from the Father, that Jesus has glorified his name and will glorify. It. And when he says he will glorify, what he's talking about is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that it will glorify the Father, You know, when Jesus says his voice comes from heaven, not just for my benefit or primarily for my benefit, but for your benefit, and that's one of the things I really love about biblical preaching, um, biblically studying the word of God and seeing what the word of God says, is God, God always encourages our hearts. Sometimes he rebukes us, sometimes he corrects us, sometimes again he needs to alter our path, but in all of that there's always correction, isn't there? And you know, haven't you found uh, found that you might have had a tough week, but you come out to church and you're downcast, and all of a sudden it's just like the preacher is preaching to you. You know, all of a sudden that message that's exegeted from God's word is just what you need. You know, and God does it often again in our lives to encourage again our hearts. You know, and this afternoon we come to that little uh, little teaching section, a little mono, monologue that uh, is given by the Lord Jesus in verses 31 to 33, that speaks about how the Father is going to be glorified through the Son. And I always think this is an amazing subject, I really do, when we talk about the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we talk about how Jesus is glorified. Because I think, again, Jesus' glory is so different from the glory, any glory that we uh, see in the world that happens to be around us. And when we talk about glory in the world, when we talk about man's glory, it's just that man's lifted up. You know, you see something about this individual or this group of people that's different from those that happen to be around us. But it quickly dissipates. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Such as somebody might break some athletic record or some uh, team might might, uh, capture some athletic competition. But we realize all those records will be broken. All those championships, again, next year will be a different champion. And that glory that they have is only momentary, isn't it? You know, even when we look at the political realm, even when we look again at the military realm, yeah, that glory of a conquering king or a political leader that rises is here today and gone tomorrow. You know, one of the most surprising things, I can remember reading this years ago, that they found this artifact, I think it was in the sands of Egypt. And as they read it, it was the boast of this mighty king, you know, and how great his kingdom would, and it would last forever. The only problem is, when they found it, you know, nobody knew who the king was. He was forgotten in history. You know, and it just shows that man's glory always dissipates. It's here today, and it looks like it will never be gone, but it's gone tomorrow. And Jesus' glory is so different, isn't it? You know, Jesus is just not a footnote in the history books. But here we are all day relishing his life, relishing what he has done. And we realize his glory will not only continue through this life, but it will continue again on to glory. You know, and the reason why is because his glory is substantial. His glory is different than the glory that happens begin around us. And like I say, when you look at man's glory, it's always being lifted up. It's always that somebody's a cut above the other's. You know, and because they're cut above the other, people praise that individual. But it's absolutely amazing when we talk about Jesus's glory. Because Jesus is lifted up also, but he's lifted up in a different way. In fact, here in this passage of scripture that our brother Abe read in John chapter 12, in verses 32 and 33, Jesus says this, and he says, And I... When I am lifted up, otherwise exalted above other people, he says, we'll draw all people to myself. But look at, because John does not let us go on a false tangent. He wants us to know what Jesus meant by this. And this is what he meant. He said this to show by what kind of death. He was going to die. So when we look at the elevation of Jesus and how he is going to be glorified, because this is what this passage is about, how the Father, how Jesus is going to be glorified is by this, by the lifting up, by the utter humiliation, by the utter, again, degradation of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? That that is the way, that is the way to glorification. Because right here, again, and I want us to understand, he's not talking about the resurrection. Does the resurrection glorify Jesus? And the answer is absolutely yes. He's not talking about his exaltation. You know, here he is at the right hand of the Father at hand. Does that glorify Christ? And the answer is absolutely yes. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the humiliation of the cross. And through this humiliation, we will know who the Son is and we will glorify the Father. And I think that's so different than us, isn't it? Because I think a lot of times where we pray, God be glorified, God be glorified, God be glorified, God be glorified through our lives. And we forget so often that the way of glorification in this life is not exaltation. That's the next life. But the way that Christ, the way that our God is going to be glorified in this life is through many times humiliation. It's through the suffering it's through, again, going through, again, much that the world throws at believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing, again, the, the other thing that uh, I want us to understand is so often we throw out these words that Christ is glorified through the cross. But, but here's what I want us to grapple with this afternoon. I want us to grapple with this. How is Christ glorified? You know, how is he praised? How is he made known? How, how, how does he exalt the Father through this? Because I think a lot of times we just read, you know, and just read and go through and say, huh, that's interesting. And when we go on to the next passage, and we never try to find these things out. And I, 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 I truly believe we're brought to a place where we trust, where we glory, and we worship this great God when we understand the passage, right? The passage is of no value to us unless we understand what the author, which happens to be God in this case, is saying, what Jesus is saying. So I want us to look at two specific ways that, the, that Jesus and the Father are glorified through the uplifting of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I hope it will be a blessing. I hope it will really challenge us to see and savor the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I want us to see is that through uh, uh, Jesus glorified by being lifted up because of the judgment that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at verse number 31 here. You know, Jesus says this, Now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world uh, is cast out. And I think a lot of times when we think of judgment, we think there's no way whatsoever glory could be brought through uh, judgment. And I think we say that many times for two reasons. One is is because we've gone through judgment. You know, other, other people, again, many times have judged us harshly, they've judged us hypocritically, and we felt that sting. You know, and so when it comes, again, to somebody being glorified through judgment, it just doesn't seem right. Now, on the other side of that, that coin, and this is my second point, is, is somehow we recognize that there is a need of judgment. If God is all holy, if he's all righteous, if he's all just, then there is a need of judgment. But certainly there's not glorification in all that. I mean, God again mourns judging the ungodly. He doesn't take great delight in doing that. But think of what glory is. Because glory is what? Glory is the public display of the character or of the worth of something and someone. So when we look and when we talk about the judgment of Christ, either being judged for sin or judging other people, there is a revelation of who Jesus is. There's a revelation of his glory, of his worth. We see who Jesus is. Now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, all of us want others to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we realize if they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they trust him, God will be glorified. Christ will be glorified. But that is not to say that if Jesus, again, here he is in his his his, uh, his sovereign role, comes as a great judge, that he's not glorified when he judges sinners, those who never have repented of their sin. And so when we look at this verse, I want us to see that this is specifically talking about Uh, How this judgment relates to Jesus being lifted up, and look at what it says here. It says, "Now the, now is the judgment of the world." Right? There's two judgments that are being taught here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be judged or, or cast out? So we see two judgments. One happens to be the world, and when he talks about the world, he's talking about again all humanity. And when he talks about again the ruler of this world, he's talking about again Satan. But what does he mean? What does he mean that through this judgment? Because remember the context. The context is the Father is going to be glorified. Jesus Christ is going to be exalted through Jesus being lifted up. And this judgment that comes. So how is the Father, how is Jesus Christ glorified? Well, let's take each one, for instance. And one way is, you know, when we start to recognize how ignoble, how awful, how evil against sin is, we recognize that there's one that is greater than sin. You know, and that happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So the more that we learn about sin, the more that we learn about what sin deserves, the more we realize, again, the eternality and the horror of the punishment, the more that we realize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ in giving that sacrifice. Now, here's what we forget. And here's why we never see the glory of Jesus Christ paying that penalty, right? He's judged for our sin. Here's why we never see the glory in it. It's because we just don't think sin's that big of a deal. We've lost the horror of sin. We've lost, again, if I can put it this way, as an old Puritan writer used to put it, we've lost the sinfulness of a sin. You know, sin is no longer sinful to us. It just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. You know, and uh, I know Mike has read this book, but Ralph Venning, uh, the old Puritan writer, wrote a little Puritan paperback, and it's basically called this, The Sinfulness of Sin. And you, know, and you know what the book of is about? And I've read it to cover to cover, so I know what the book's about. But the whole book is about, here it is, the sinfulness of sin. That's what it's about. You know, and think about it, because if we had to describe sin in all of its awfulness, all of it's what it's worth, how much, how much conversation could we have about that? How much could we describe about that? Because here's a whole book on the sinfulness of sin. You know, let me just give you a taste of what he writes. Because he writes again this way all the way through. He says, nothing is so evil as sin. Nothing is evil but sin. As the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. So neither the sufferings of this life nor that to come are worthy to be compared as evil with the evil of sin. And listen what he says next. No evil is so displeasing to God or destructive to man, but the evil of sin. Sin is worse than affliction, than death, than devil, than hell. Affliction is not so afflictive. Death is not so deadly. The devil is not so devilish. Hell is not so hellish as sin is. The four evils I have just named are truly terrible and From all of them, everyone is ready to say, good Lord, deliver us. Yet none of these, nor all of them together, are as bad as sin. Therefore, a prayer should be more to be delivered from sin. And if God hears, no prayer else. Yet as to this, we should say, we beseech thee to hear us. Good Lord. You know, and we've lost that sense of sin. And when we lose the sense of sin, you lose the grandeur of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the popular notion among many uh, w- w- many that would call themselves Bible-believing churches is we no longer have sin. You, you know, it's a missing term. You know, what we have is dysfunctions. What we have is Disorders. And the gospel, Here, here's the gospel, here's the glory of Christ's sacrifice. Here's the glory of being lifted up. It's put down because I have a greater need, you know, and it's this disorder. It's this dysfunction. So if I can't control my temper, you know, it's just a disorder. It's not that I'm sinning against others. It's not that I'm sinning against God. It's just the way that I am made. When certain buttons are pushed, I cannot help myself. I'm not responsible for it. And we somehow take sin away, you know, if I have a lust problem. You know, that's just the way I've, I'm made. It's not me. Now, there's disorders upon disorders upon disorders, you know, and it's incredible to, to uh, read them. You know, what, what if your child came to you, you, you know, and you told them on a, I don't know, a Saturday afternoon to go clean the room. You know, and they came back, Dad, Mom, you have to understand, I have a cleaning room disorder. You know, and and it's the way I'm made. I just can't clean my room. You know, um, you should hold a walkathon or uh, something else to somehow again get people aware of this disorder. But it's just the way I'm made. You, you, you know, and I say that tongue in cheek because so often we've lost this whole sense again of the gravity of sin. And when you lose the gravity of sin, you no longer see the glory that is brought in the judgment of Jesus Christ on that cross to take away our sin. you know and we need to get that uh, that aspect uh, that that truth of the magnitude of our sinfulness, or we don 't see the magnitude of God's glory. But the second way that uh, we see the glory of Christ in the judgment of the world that happens to be around us, it just shows us how sinful the world is. You know, not only, again, is this the only way of salvation, that the Son of God, this, this glorious God who's worthy of all worship, his worth, he is comes and puts on uh, 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 donning human flesh, but it shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt how the world who rejects the greatest light that has been given is worthy of judgment. I mean, I mean, it is amazing because so often when we look at, if we're in our natural state, we would do the same that those who happen to be in the gospel, who were in their natural state. And here's Jesus Christ. He comes, you know, and he gives sight to the blind, he heals the lame, he heals again anybody again of any disease, and then he teaches. He teaches how one can have access into the kingdom of God, can come into God's presence if they truly trust him because he is the great I am. He's the great son of God. And what do they do? They crucify him. In fact, when they crucify him, there's almost this festive spirit that we read about this morning, you know, in Matthew chapter 27. (laughs) Let's say, no, 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 don't, 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 don't give him that wine. Yeah, I think he's calling out for Elijah. You know, and there's almost this festive atmosphere that happens to be again around there. And here's the greatest light that has ever been given. And it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt how people are deserving of eternal eternal judgment. In fact, John says a little earlier in this gospel, in chapter number three, he says, and this is the judgment. Here it is, the light. Has come. Notice it's not a light, but the light has come into the world. And people did what? They loved darkness rather than the light. Because why? Their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. So... Think about, again, the necessity, again, of judgment right here. If sinful man rejects the glory of God and God all of a sudden just shrugs his shoulders, he is not vindicating. He's telling us something about the worth of Christ. But if Christ comes as a mighty judge who has offered this great redemption and he judges mankind, he vindicates his character. He vindicates, again, his worth. And remember, because we have to get this in, in our hearts and in our minds, Jesus never judges against somebody overly harshly, and he never devalues their sin that happens to be in life, but always carries out perfect judgment. So when we read about the judgment that happens to be again in the scriptures, we read about that perfect judgment of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is hard for us, but Jesus Christ is glorified through judgment, through the judgment of the ungodly. You know, um... I've got a quote here, and the quote again comes from Mark Jones uh, from the book Knowing Christ. You know, and look at what it says right here. It says, all are created for Christ. And when he means all are created for Christ, and he quotes Colossians 1.16, it's basically this. Everything is for Christ's glory. Everything. And then he goes on, even, and that shouldn't be heal, that should be hell. Even hell itself is created for What? For Christ, for his glory. And he he makes this comment, and I want you to see it. And this would bother a lot of people. But if not Christ's character is not vindicated, if it did not, guess what? Hell would not exist. You know, and that's what we have to realize. You know, eternal judgment, either from the saved, through Jesus being lifted up, or Jesus coming to judge the world, both aspects of that judgment glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also another judgment that happens again in this verse. You know, and this verse again reads out, now is the judgment of this world. And then, then he says right after that, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You know, and we realize what, who the ruler of the world is. You know, he's none other than the great accuser of the brethren. He's none other than Satan, the devil, you know, the serpent. You know, and we realize this, that he accuses us night and day. And we realize, again, uh, before this, that we were under his sway, under his influence. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, it says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once uh, walked following the course of the world. And listen to what he says next. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work. In who? In the sons of disobedience. It's talking about us. In our natural self, we were under the sway again, of Satan, he's behind all of this sin, um, uh, this Jesus-hating world. And the que- question becomes, you know, how is Satan cast out? How is he cast down? How, how is he defeated? Because in one sense, when you look at the cross, it looks like a satanic victory. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I mean, here are the chosen people of God, and I say that again, the people of God in quotations, but the, but the Jews, you know, they were chosen people of God that happened begin of the Old Testament. And here they take and gleefully, again, take the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're responsible for nailing him on that cross along with the Romans. You know, we realize they they do it. And in a way, this really seems like a satanic victory. But that's why we have the New Testament, isn't it? Because the New Testament, again, exegetes what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So when we read that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it's followed, again, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5, and it says this, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, did what? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved uh, by grace, you have been saved. And so the good news is that all those who happen to, begin to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are saved from the ultimate wrath of God. You know, and the greatest, again, victory that Jesus ever had over Satan is not again in the future when he's thrown into the lake of fire. The greatest victory that Jesus had over our great enemy, over Satan himself, is when Jesus went through the fire of the cross of Calvary, when he was made sin for us. You know, we even read this in Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 13. It says, And you, speaking again of us, were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all the trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. And what did he do? Nailing it to the cross. And this is what happened. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Isn't that amazing? He canceled our debt. He took that debt and nailed it to the cross forevermore. Now Satan, again, in all the accusations that he could ever make against the people of God, can't make those accusations. And why? Because that debt has been settled forevermore. He took the power again of sin, which happens to be the law. And Jesus lived and died in our place. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says this Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of Christ, he says, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy. Listen what he destroys the one who has the power of death. That is who? The devil. And deliver all those through fear of death were subject. To lifelong slavery. Think about it. All of life marches on and it marches to death, doesn't it? You know, and we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, one day we will have to face this holy God. You know, when people try to forget it, they try to distract themselves with various different amusements that happen to be in their life. But what does the gospel announce? The gospel announces through Jesus Christ the sting of death, right? Satan's always holding us overhead, but the sting of death has been removed. And how has it been removed? Because the sting of death is a law. And the strength of the law is sin. And what did Christ do? He nailed that law. He nailed that sin to the cross of Calvary. And this is how... Satan is cast out. There's no accusation that happened to be again of the people of God. And and here's my whole point. When you look at judgment, judgment glorifies Christ, right? He's judged for our sins. He's coming back as that great judge. And here, ultimately, the great enemy, again, of our souls is judged. He's cast out. He has no power. He has no authority, you know, to condemn, again, any one of us. Christ is magnified, but let me just take a few moments more, and let me uh, bring out the second point, and that is, again, that Jesus Christ is glorified by being lifted up because of his effective or efficacious grace in our life, and look at what it says in verse number 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, you know, and I love this, this is one of these precious verses, isn't it, because it talks about, again, the work of Jesus Christ, doesn't it, and he says, I, I love that pronoun, You know, I will do this. And when he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when we come to the last clause that happened to be there, the I belongs in front of that, right? Because he starts this. He's talking about him. So he says, I will draw all people to myself. And the way that he draws all people to himself is by being lifted up. Without the lifting up, there's the impossibility of drawing all people to himself. But this is also talking about his resurrection. And ultimately, again, all the work, all the outcome of the work that happens to be again on Calvary. Now, let me just name, uh, let me make a number of comments because I think this is a confusing verse at the same time. And one of the comments that I want us to make is when he says, all, uh, I will draw all people to myself, I want us to see that phrase, all people. Now, here's the question. And I don't want you to answer because usually people answer it absolutely correctly. And I think it's a little more difficult this time. What does all people mean? You know, I will draw all people to myself. You know, because the teaching of universalism, uh, one of the main verses that they use for universalism is actually this verse. And universalism basically teaches that when Jesus died on the cross for mankind's sin, that he died for everyone. You know, whether they believe, you know, God wants you to believe, God wants you to trust, God wants you to honor him, God wants you to follow him, but it was made for everybody. You know, whether they believe or whether they know him or not. You know, and the evidence of this is right here. I will draw, whether they realize it or drawn into the kingdom of God, I will draw all people to myself. Now, what's wrong with that view? Because, again, if you took that phrase, if you took that clause all on its own, it would seem to teach universalism. But let me just say this, you know, when you look at this clause that happened right here, it's in a wider context. And guess what the wider context is all about? Because we just talked about it. It's about, it begins with a J, anybody know? Judgment, right? That he is the great judge. And it's amazing even if you look at the wider context, because here it is, Jesus Christ talks more about judgment, he talks more about the horrors of hell than he ever does about the bliss of heaven. You know, he warns people, flee, trust me, it's the only way that you can escape this coming judgment. You know, and it's amazing to look at this because it doesn't come out in the English. The English tries to give the sense, but that word people is not there in the original language. So what Jesus says, and think of why the English translators put this word in because they're trying to give a sense. It says, I will draw all to myself. Right? And what's he mean by the all? And what he means by the all is basically this. All who have been chosen from the foundation of the world, I will draw to myself. None more, none less. But there's some that happen to be given. And I love this aspect because I don't know if you you ever thought about it because there's some that teach that Jesus makes salvation available to everybody, but he doesn't know if anybody will come or any might not come. You know, if we hold that sort of Arminian view then we hold this, that the cross might have been of no value to anyone whatsoever. Many might not have come. When Jesus, again, hung on that cross when he died, he did not know beyond a shadow of a doubt if anybody would ever trust him. But what this tells us is, I will draw all that the Father has given me to me. You know, you have something, again, of that teaching over in John chapter 6 and verse number 37, where it says, all that the Father gives me will what? All that the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So here we have effective calling to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have absolute assurance. And think about this absolute assurance. All that the Father has been given to me, I will not lose any of them. And if he loses one of them, then he... uh, tramples underfoot the glory of God the Father because God the Father has given these ones as precious gifts for the Son to be glorified. You know, and we have both, again, election, we have both, again, effective calling, and we have also the assurance of salvation in that verse. So when it says all people right here, what it's talking about, again, is all those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. And notice that word also, draw, you know, that the word throws a lot of people out, and I think a lot of times, and it says there, and I will draw all people to myself, and I think a lot of times uh, when we look at this, we often, uh, what would I say, offer caricatures, and what I mean by caricatures are something that a certain view does not teach, but, but, but we make it out to teach that way, and, and often when you look at Calvinism, or when you look at the sovereignty of God in salvation, or the doctrines of grace, or however you want to word it, many times it's, pi- it's pictured that God again has a tug of war with the, with the sinner. That there's some sinners, yeah, that want to come, but there's some sinners that don't want to come, and because they've been elected before the four council of God, be, 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 uh, before creation itself, because they've been elected in Christ, God again has that tug of war. He will always win, and he goes against their very wills to bring them into the kingdom, even though they do not want to come. You know, and the other view that happens again out there is basically the, the other side of that view is that there's some that want to come, that do not want to come. You know, I can remember uh, reading a book by James White. You know, and he was debating an Armenian, and he gave the illustration of basically it's almost like these boys that swim out, and they swim out in this pond, and they start drowning, and Jesus is in a boat, and he's got a life preserver. You know, and they're drowning, and they're calling out for help, but Jesus doesn't throw the life preserver. And the reason why he doesn't throw the life preserver is because they are not his. So he sits stoically in the boat, caring less for these individuals. And let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is a caricature of a view. You know, it's, it's not the true view. Because I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, those who do not come to Christ do not come to Christ. Guess why? Guess why? Because they don't want to come. They could care less. James White goes on and explains again how the illustration is. Jesus goes out and rows out to save these boys. You know, and he throws out the life preserver. And they swim away from the life preserver. They do not want what Jesus Christ offers. And they willfully, they delightfully swim away from that life preserver because they do not want the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. And, you know, the same thing with those who come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The reason why they come, here it is, is because they want to come. They desire to come to Jesus Christ. But here's the question. Why do they desire? And they desire because this is why. This is why. Here's God the Father. God the Father has given some before the foundation of the world, and he makes a contingent on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're drawn effectively and willfully by the Spirit of God. And what I mean by that is God works on their wills so effectively that the will becomes willing to delightfully come to Christ. You know, it's as R.C. Sproul explains, and listen to what he writes right here. He says, the spirit changes the recalcitrant heart of the sinner, making the unwilling, here it is, willing to come to Christ, he makes the indisposed disposed to him, the disinclined fully inclined. Our salvation is entirely of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Joe Beakey writes something similar. He says, In saving sinners, and listen to this, I think this is so important. In saving sinners, the Spirit does not supersede the normal process of thought and choice. And that's so important because when we think it, we think, oh, yeah, 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 I realize that I come to this conclusion and that conclusion is thought and choice. But look at what he says next. He does not overcome the sinner, but this is what he does, but transforms him. The Spirit irresistibly draws the elect to himself with loving kindness and omnipotence. This then is the amazing truth of God's grace. God makes the will willing to will God in response to his call. That amounts to what theologians call, here it is, effectual calling. That's what it is. And think about it. Because Christ is teaching, you know, this is how the Father, this is how I'm going to be glorified. And if salvation is all of God, and not of us, then who's to be prized? Who's to be praised? Who's to be known through salvation? And it's God, isn't it? You know, so often when we teach salvation, uh, there's two views of salvation. And one is called a synergistic view. And that is, again, where the sinner has to do his part, and God has to do his part. And God's part has already been done. You know, God, again, sent Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came through the power of the Spirit, lived that perfect life, died that substitutionary uh, death. But now it's the sinner's part. And, and, and here's the sinner. And it's all contingent on the sinner. God has already done his part, right? But both of these, here's the synergy, have to uh, cooperate. The sinner has to repent. He has to trust Christ on his own. And God has to do his part that happens to be over there. And we call that a synergistic view of salvation, what the scriptures teach, and what this passage of scripture teaches right here, here it is. It is a monogistic view of salvation. Mono meaning what? Not a disease. But mono meaning one. Right? Right? One. It is God. It is God who takes... Preacher can preach. Preacher can preach. We can witness, witness, witness. But guess what a dead soul does? A dead soul does, begins with an end. Nothing. Right? What he does is take that word, give new life, and make it effectual in his heart. So much so that here it is. All of the glory, all of the accolades, all of the praise goes to God. And we realize how great his grace, how effective, again, his mercy is in our life. And that he is worthy of praise. And that's an amazing thing. I think a lot of times we come out to service, you know, and please, you know, we need a little more beat, Jim. You know, we need, again, a little more up- Uptake, you know, script, uh, uh, pastor, be a little more excited. Richard, be, 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 be a little more dynamic. You know, and we try to conjure up feelings that happen to be in us to worship God. And let me say it's, be, it's found right here, it's found in recognizing who he is, recognizing who Christ is, recognizing how he is magnified, how he is known, how his character is known. And one of the chief aspects of knowing who Christ is, is in the cross. You know, and we realize the song that we're going to be singing in all of eternity, but I think the song that we sing in all of eternity, we should be singing today. Isn't it true? And it's taken from Revelation chapter 5 in verse number 12. Worthy is the Lamb. Don't you love that? Right? It says, worthy is the Lamb. Right? Right. Here he is, lifted up on the cross of Calvary. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I love these passages of Scripture because it's almost like... Those who happen to be in heaven saying, let's empty out human language. Let's take all these superlatives and let's apply them to Jesus Christ, all that we can think of, and we, can, and we don't come to an end. And why? Because here it is. It's based upon teaching, isn't it? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The cross displays the character and glory of our great God. Let's praise him and know him through that revelation. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Oh, Father God, what an amazing passage. What an amazing statement. Lord, to to think that Jesus Christ knew of all the horrors of, of that cross. Lord, not only the physical turmoil, but Lord, how he was going to Take that wrath that we deserve for all of eternity on himself. And yet, even at this time, Lord, in that very night, knowing he was going to be betrayed in all the events of the next day, Lord, was willing to walk down that road, was willing, Lord, to glorify you, was willing to be lifted up, was willing, Lord, to purchase our redemption forevermore. Lord, when we think of the horrors of sin, when we think of the value of Christ, we come to the horrors of sin that there was no other way. Lord, all we can do is worship Christ. All we can do, Lord, is recognize his effective grace in our life while we are here today. Help us, help us to glorify him. We thank you so much in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.